Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came and now, ladies and gentlemen, this is usually where someone says uh, the one and only the Jerry Springer, but. Last Tuesday, if you listen to our shows, and if you're listening now, go back one show on the archive. Our social media person, Bree Long, a yes. student at the University of Cincinnati yes. in the DAAP, Design, Art, Architecture, Planning. Great, yes. great program. She's a co-op student with us. And uh, we asked her to fill in for Megan, whose day job, she's out traveling. She's yes. an HR professional. And so we said, Bree, come on up and do it. She said, I'm, I'm really kind of nervous. It's not my thing. And, and Jerry, you I, took out $100. I took $100. Take the damn $100 out again. I'll see if that works. We'll see if that works. So Bree is, is in the audience. Bree, would you go to that microphone right there, if you will? Bree, we have $100 for you right Wait, here. Wait, She's coming up. You She's wait. coming up. She'll look oh, at her. No. And now, Bree, oh, introduce no. him. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jerry Springer. Yeah! Oh, Give yeah. 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 to her. Oh, oh man. Hey, now my wife is in the audience saying, I would have done it for 50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way. Oh, man. Thank you. You got to report that on your taxes. By the way, Bree is, is like every college student you've ever met. Uh, they, uh, they need money. They always need some money, and she's got... But uh, last week, she, she was well, amazing. she was scared. Because, honestly, she was really and nervous. She did and not I said, she didn't know we'd do this. I said, I took out a $100 bill. I said, you come up here and introduce me. This $100 bill is yours. Yeah. And you could see she was starting to quiver. She was like, the, You know, the lip was starting to go like that. $100. And... She turned yeah. me down. But, here's what happened. That's not One of the truth. Because yes. I'm not going to bullshit you. At of the course break, you are. At the break, of course. At the break, I said, Bree, do it. Take the 100, give me 25. I'll make it happen oh, again. Oh, you. Oh. This isn't hard. Oh. This isn't hard. Oh. Hey, by the way, let's hear it for Bryce Carlson. Whoa. Who is sitting here at a microphone. A quick introduction. Bryce Carlson is an educator. Uh, he's, we should call him Dr. Bryce Carlson. He has a doctorate in anthropological biology, maybe? Do I have that right? Yeah, close, close enough, enough, yeah. And uh, from, I think, Michigan, you did undergraduate. Right, my graduate degree was from Emory University. Oh, Emory oh, in Atlanta. Georgia. Yeah. Oh my God, it's a great school. And so Bryce is an educator at Seven Hill School, a school here in Cincinnati. He is the rowing coach. He was on crew at Michigan, so it's in his wheelhouse to do rowing. So he last summer, with a, correct me every step of the way, a 20-foot carbon fiber solo rowboat, no support boat, nobody with him, alone rowed from St. John's, Newfoundland, to an isle in England. The name of the isle is? Uh, St. Mary's. St. Mary's yeah. Isle, which is the legitimate ending of a crossing of the North Atlantic. And the guy beat the heck out of the world record, which, as I recall, was 53 days. You did it in 38? That's right, yeah, so about 15 days. So that oh. is amazing. Yeah. So midway across the North Atlantic, and Bryce and I just getting to know each other, talked to him by phone, and, and we stayed in touch. And my backpacker done a lot of Alaska stuff, so I know satellite phones well. And he had an Iridian, I assume it's the good one. He had a satellite phone technology on the boat. 
And halfway across, pretty much the exact halfway point, we talked to him on the satellite phone. A couple calls dropped. The third one held pretty well. And he was in the middle of the North Atlantic. So we are so happy you've come over here because we just want to debrief this thing. You, let's get this straight. You got in a rowboat. <laughs> well, at first and, I had the rowboat built, but yeah, then yeah. I climbed in. Yeah. Okay, well, that's important to have it built first. <laughs> and then you got in it and you said, I'm going to row to England. Yeah. Okay, and who, who is your psychiatrist? <laughs> uh, still shopping. Yeah. Okay. Still shopping. So you, okay, now it is astounding. I mean, when you just sat down here, I literally just met you two minutes ago, and uh, I said I've never met anyone like you. And, and, and that's God's truth. I, I, can't, I really can't imagine someone deciding to do that that didn't want to take their hey, life. Hey, put it in perspective, Jerry, 4,000 people have climbed Mount Everest successfully. Yes. How many people have rode across the North Atlantic alone? Uh, 15-ish? 15-ish compared to 4,000 have climbed Mount Everest. This is a huge deal. Yeah. First of all, how do you train for it? I know you're rowing, Coach, but it's not like rowing on an ocean. You know, when you run a... a you know, when you're a runner... You can just run. You run up hills. You, you know, you can train yeah. for that. Yeah. How can you duplicate what being on the Atlantic Ocean is going to be like? How do you train yeah, for you, it? You can't. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that the real answer is it's a lifetime of experiences that prepared my mind to even conceive of, of doing this. Yeah. You know, no one or two year training plan would get my mind prepared for this. So it's really a decade's worth of ultra marathon uh, running and racing. Uh, you know, four years of collegiate rowing, a lot of years as a kid running around right. in the woods and exploring and, um, you know, and a lot of lessons learned both in college and grad school. Like once you set your mind to something and you commit to it, you commit to it. Like you don't, you don't quit. Like once yeah. you commit to it, you're on the hook, buddy. And um, so, yeah, I think once I decided this was something I wanted to do, there wasn't, there was no turning back. I understand that runners, the expression of you hit the wall when you're running a marathon that at some point along the line, you think, I can't go on anymore, but then you somehow say, this is where I've got to push through that wall, mm -hmm. and then it kind of, okay, now I know I can do it. Yeah. In those 50 or 38 days, when did you hit the wall? Or did you? Or I think I've, I've hit enough walls and, yeah. and uh, managed to get over them or through them enough times. that Because I think a I, summer ago, you ran from coast to coast a marathon a day, correct? Right, yeah. So you've been there before. Yeah, I've been through some walls. So I think I view the wall a little differently now. Yeah. Um, you know, I approach it a little more gingerly. I see, I see it coming on the horizon. Yeah. I don't just like slam into it headlong. So when I see that the wall is coming, I start modifying my behavior well in advance to make sure I don't just hit it. Let's yeah. say, and I'm glad it didn't happen, but let's say you just, I don't know, you got really sick or you got this incredible cramp that wouldn't go away. Or yeah. Could you have quit and what would you do? You're in the middle of the ocean. Where do you, you can't say, hey, I'm over here. I mean, how would you have Well, quit? I think a little, a little thing, like, like a cramp or yeah. even an overuse injury, neither of those are dire uh, project-ending ailments. Uh, it's, uh, okay, the next five minutes I can't row. I'm going to sit out the next I five see. minutes and I'm going to see what happens. Okay, five minutes later, I, I, I'm still 
it still hurts too much to row. I'm going to sit out another five minutes. And, you know, eventually the body becomes capable of getting back at it. Like eventually, you know, well, at least in this experience for me, nothing got serious enough that I couldn't get back to the oars. What was the closest you got to dying? Um, well, <laughs> there, was one, there was one day uh, I, I brought a drone with me. Uh, thinking I'd have some wonderful encounters with, with whales. And in order to put that in perspective, I wanted to have a drone in the air where I could get As some video. As you were eaten by a whale. <laughs> yeah, right? That's wonderful. Put some floaters on it. Eventually someone you will find You don't want to miss video. that video yeah. so you can enjoy it. Yeah. But what I failed to realize is how hard it would be to get the drone back on the boat after it was in the air. Because the boat's, even on a calm day, the boat's moving up and down with the swells, which is like five to seven feet up and down, so it's moving in three-dimensional space, but that drone isn't, it's kind of parked, it's fixed in that space. And the best I could do is fly it close enough to me that I could snatch it out of the air. And when I did, the, one of the blades caught my finger. Um, and thankfully, it just gave it a good thump, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, in other circumstances, I think that easily could have taken my finger off. Whoa. Um, Whoa. And that would have, I think, be a shame you go all the way to England and then when you get there they say give me four right <laughs> yeah uh, hey by the way and again correct me here on my facts but you literally rolled over this boat is designed to right itself I guess it has ballast in or so so you right. rolled over maybe a dozen times yeah. one time you were upside down you had an airport open yeah the, the first boat time got water. yeah the first time I rolled I mean there's a there's an air vent that allows you know, the carbon dioxide that's building up inside the vent when everything's yep. tightened up to get out and fresh oxygen to get in. Um, I hadn't really considered like under what circumstances I need to keep that closed, under what circumstances I can keep it open. And I miscalculated on one day, it was a little too rough. And uh, I woke up around five in the morning to find the boat upside down and myself lying on the ceiling. Wow. And uh, water pouring in through that open air vent. What does, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what it looks like. How do you wind up on the ceiling and you not know you're on the ceiling? Oh, I, I knew as I was approaching the ceiling that, <laughs> that oh, I was yeah. being rolled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I thought well in advance about the boat getting rolled and me getting rolled in it. And I had set up a lot of cushioning um, and padding kind of inside the cabin. So... It was actually kind of a soft <laughs> roll as I was getting yeah. chucked to the ceiling. How long did it take for it to find its way all the way around and back up again? Uh, maybe 30 seconds. Okay. so it, 30 it, seconds to a minute. And yeah, during I mean, that time, quick. water's coming in. Yeah. And you, you uh, compromise to a degree some of your electronics yeah, over time. Because the because that's salt water coming yeah, in. Yeah, because the electric panel wasn't completely like uh, watertight even inside the cabin. Um, so as water got into the ceiling, it got in behind the electrical panel. So when the boat righted itself, there was about a gallon of water coming out from behind the electrical panel, having thoroughly mm -hmm. soaked all the wiring. You uh, were out there it. with Hurricane Chris, the remnants of it. Yeah. Which, because I followed uh, Bryce every step of the way, and my wife is here in the audience, and we both were like, well, where's Bryce today? What's going on? And your, your social media person, a counselor at Seven Hill School and a close friend of yours, did great work. And I know that you lost a sea anchor early. Yeah. And, and a sea anchor is like a, kind of a parachute that opens so that it holds you nose into the wind and right. into the swell so that you're not rolling. Right. Uh, That's the idea anyway. Yeah. Well, even when I had the anchor, the boat didn't sit very calmly on really? anchor. So, and, I, and I'm not, I don't understand all the ins and outs necessarily of it, but 
uh, for whatever reason, even when deployed straight off the bow, the boat would still want to turn okay. broadside to really? the waves. Uh, I mean, it would, it would keep it to a, a degree nose into the waves and into the wind. Um, but it was almost always a rough ride, even, even on anchor. But, I mean, I lost the anchor probably the first week. And a dagger so, board at some point? Yeah, yeah, in the center. But that was probably the, the much, I didn't realize it at the time, that was the much bigger loss. Okay. Um, partly due to stability, so the boat rocked side to side a lot more without it. Uh, but the bigger problem was that that centerboard really countered the wind from pushing me at adverse angles. So yeah. almost all the time, wind was rarely directly behind me. Okay. Um, it was always at some kind of angle. And what the centerboard does, it helps resist the boat from getting pushed at the angle that the wind is coming from. So I'm obviously trying to row at some angle to the wind to keep due east. But let's say the wind is coming from the south. Uh, it's pushing the boat north. So to keep on my easterly course, I actually have to aim yeah. partly south yeah. to counter that drift. Well, without the centerboard, I had to aim further south yeah. to counter that drift. And there were some times where I was pointed almost directly, like directly south. So I'm making such slow progress due to that lack of, of the centerboard. It got extremely frustrating. How long do you row before just stopping and taking a little break? I mean, are your arms yeah. going an hour at a time? Yeah, about 30 minutes. 30 about minutes. About 30 minutes. And I, then I, you kind of... I kind of for, I forced myself to stay on a 30 minutes of continuous rowing, or at least 30 minutes of effort, 30 yeah. minutes of work, and then I would allow myself to put the oars down and get a drink of water or send you a text message. And... You are so lazy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bryce, why did you do this? What was the reason you did it? It's like, why did people climb Mount Everest? Why would you do this? What did your parents I don't, you do? Know, I, I, I don't like that. I don't like that question. Right. And I don't, I don't mean anything against you. Yeah. I get asked no, a lot. I, you can be against you. I don't like <laughs> it because there's, there's no answer to it. Okay. Right? Uh, you know, why, why do you like mint chocolate chip ice cream? I don't know. I just like it. You put it in your yeah. mouth, it tastes good. Yeah. You know, why do you like burgers and fries? That's Even though you huge. know it's going to kill you from heart disease. I yeah. don't know. It just tastes good when I put yeah. it in my mouth. Yeah. You know, two, three years ago when I first conceived of this idea... There was just, you know, I was just something about it. The more I thought about it, the more excited I got about it. You know, in retrospect, I can look back and say, well, I've always loved, like, the ocean and marine biology. I'm a I'm biology teacher. I love yeah. biology. Um, you know, for a long time, I thought I was going to become a marine biologist. I've been involved in the sport of rowing for 20 years. I've been involved in ultra-endurance events for, you know, 10-plus years. So this is kind of a, a culmination of all those yeah. things coming Makes together. Sense. But but that reasoning, that justification is kind of a, a post hoc. Yeah. It's an after-the-fact justification for why I got excited. But I'm trying to figure that out for myself. Did you, yeah. did you run into any whales along the way? I mean, did you, or sharks or anything Actually, that would scare the rest of us? Not really. I mean, I, the, yeah. I had a number of encounters with some dolphins, with dolphins. Yeah. I had a, a couple encounters with whales, um, but fairly small. They're smaller. Um, the less sexy whales, you know, like I didn't have any beautiful moments with like the humpback whale yeah. and to hear its song and the, or the big blue whale. Yeah. I, you know, I saw a couple false killer whales. I saw a couple Northern bottlenose whales. These are, they're smaller whales that kind of just look like big dolphins. Oh, what a whale. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When you, when you finally arrived in England mm -hmm. or St. Mary's Island, uh, they knew you were coming in because I guess you... But on very short notice, I, I was planning to make Were there falls. people there? Where, where, did you 
do- did you land at or dock at a, a dock or yeah. was it just a beach or I pulled into the main harbor on, on St. Mary's Island. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can I mention something? I was watching, uh, my wife and I were watching live and it was amazing, Bryce, because I guess uh, either your girlfriend or your friend doing social media had it on Facebook live the whole time. Yeah, Alex rowing, was running that Facebook Live, yeah. And you were rowing against the wind. You worked hard to get in, it looked like us. Um, I was, the three days up until the end were some of the hardest of, of the whole trip. Really? Because I, had, again, without the centerboard, and I had winds coming from a pretty a, adverse angle. Um, and I was rowing, like, kind of around the clock. To, to avoid drifting too far north. Because the closer you get to land, the less margin of error there is on the navigation. So... I couldn't afford really even 10 minutes to stop rowing um, those last three days. Oh, I couldn't afford the time to, like, pump water, pump more water, well, did or you make more food. Um, not did... very much. Uh, wow. There was one night I rowed through the night, really? and a couple other nights really? I got maybe, a, yeah, a couple few hours. And by the Amazing. way, Jerry, the, they had notified the people on the island that you were coming in. There were tourists there, because I saw yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. There were tourists that there. Cool. There were family and friends were there. Yeah. And he literally landed at a, at a dock with a concrete stairway and got off yeah. and walked up. And it was really cool, by the way, from an observer's perspective. Oh, it was fun. My dad, my dad came down to meet me as I step off the boat. And he asked me, like, do, do, do I need him to carry me up the stairs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're good, Dad. Thanks. There's, yeah. there's a rail yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how'd you come back? Uh, by plane, thankfully. Oh. Yeah, Mud, the what luxury. A, yeah. What a wimp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And didn't uh, Wow Airlines comp you? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Wow Airlines was terrific. Well, yeah. Wow, they yeah. picked up. They picked up the tab for my flight yeah. home. Yeah. Well, it's quite amazing. And it, one other quick question. I'm going to slide in here, Jerry. Your students. You're yeah. an educator. I'm an educator by trade too for many years. So to be in a classroom teaching what you teach, having experienced that. And I know how kids, it'd be a big deal on the first day, and then after that, it's just like, you know, you're Dr. Carlson, and that's that. Did you bring back stuff that is important to lesson plans into the future, do you feel? Um, Very little tangible. All right. Um, Yeah, I might have loved to have collected like 100 water samples along the way, and we could, you know, look at those samples under the microscopes and look at the biodiversity changes in plankton along the way, depending on the water temperature and the currents. And I mean... Lots I could have done yes. if I had more space on the boat and I wasn't so focused on surviving. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts in my head about how I'll turn the experience into, into curriculum. And I'm very fortunate to be partnering with a local um, company called Abre, helping me turn that, uh, that, this experience into curriculum that okay. we can share with. The Were world. there any effect? Did you notice in your trip, now maybe in hindsight, the effects of what's going on with the environment on your trip? In other words, did you now say, wow, this was different because of what's happening, how we're treating the environment? Or um, Not that you did, but just in case yeah, you Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think I was on the lookout for trash, right? I mean, I, oh, I, yeah. I kind of wanted, you know, wanted to see or say something to- about, like, increasing concentrations of trash as yeah. I moved from... Why um, did they do they get my show over there? <laughs> uh, they didn't say anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, it's hard for me to say it about yeah. uh, climatic changes and things. And if I had seen anything, I think it would be you know, very anecdotal for me to try to connect the yeah. dots. Yeah, I was just wondering. 
Well, well I'm glad I'm one that's you glad really you did it. I, I just think it's cool. I, I, yeah, it's a great answer. Like, I don't know, I just did it because it felt like doing it. And I, I, I can picture that. But I'm glad you did it because those of us who don't do it, it's really cool, Bryce. It's really cool to, to spend. And I know a lot of people that, that for those 38 days, it was very entertaining in a good way. It had suspense to it, and the stuff you were, you were so blasé about, man, it turned, I was upside down last night. And, or the one that freaked me out was, well, I lost a sea anchor. I think I can fix that. Oh, I broke a dagger board. I think I can fix that. Next, two days later, nah, you can't. I need steel rods to go in with the epoxy to give it real integrity, because I'm an old sailor, too. Yeah. I thought, if you break a dagger board and it's dangling. Yeah. Epoxy probably won't be... Well, a craftsman I am not, but I gave it the Nor old am I. Try. Yeah. I couldn't have fixed it either. <laughs> it was just cool that you did it. What a great uh, thing to have done this summer for us to follow, and we applaud you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Nice call. Thank you. Okay. Thank, you very thank you very much. Yeah. By the way, we're going to yeah. have Hickory Robot on. I could have done it. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, here we go again. One last time. Would you join yeah. me and Lewis Beck, who will be the third driver, rent an enterprise rental car, could be Hertz, one week unlimited mileage, put a record number of miles driving around the country 24 and 7, put more miles on a one week unlimited rental car than anyone's ever done, put it on the Guinness Book of Records. Will you do it? Only if you agree not to be with us. <laughs> Hang on. Bree, would you be willing to hundred dollars? One hundred dollars. Oh anyway. Man. Hey uh Jerry, so yes. uh again these are usually listened to in an, from an archive, so there's a delay. But there has been at the time of this recording an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times that is allegedly from, well, I'm going to say is from, because the New York Times vetted it. They knew yes. who wrote it. Somebody who is a, a, an official, an administration, an administration official. A high-ranking official in the White House. What's your take on all that? Um, but as you said, by the time people hear this, it's, it, it's possible that we're going to know who wrote that uh, op-ed piece in the New York Times. Uh, but basically, for those who haven't heard about it or haven't read it, uh, someone who, a high-ranking official in the current White House, wrote an op-ed piece without divulging his or her name, uh, saying that there are people in the White House right now secretly working together to protect America from the unstableness or the instability of our president. In other words, working secretly without his knowledge to protect us from him. Sounds astounding. And uh, it's coming from inside the White House. And this is the person they're so afraid of, apparently, because this is the person that we always say uh, has his finger on the button, could blow up the world. And to think that we have a president that even the people that are working with him are so afraid what he might do how can any of us rest easy knowing that? I mean, we kind of said that 
you know, I remember during the campaign, people were saying that. And now you go around, and virtually everyone says the guy's crazy. Even if you like some of the things that are happening, you say, the guy's nuts, he's crazy, he's unstable, you don't want your kid to grow up to be like him, all that kind of stuff. But if you think about it seriously, whoa, this guy really does have his finger on the button, and there are people that are working with him. It's like an old 1960s movie, uh, Seven Days in May or Dr. Strangelove, where but there's a crazy person that can blow up the world. I had three observations. About, well, I had several observations about that. Uh, the first is, if we're all honest, none of what was said we can really say was a surprise to us. And that's because we've been through a year and a half, at least, of all these reports coming out about what's going on in the White House, the chaos, his behavior, uh, his apparent instability. And now we have the Woodward book, and then Michael Wolff had a book earlier in the year. So kind of everything that we're now hearing, everything that was said in this op-ed piece, we kind of already know. We already knew it. So it's not, that wasn't shocking. It, what was shocking is that someone in the White House would admit to it and be doing something about it. And another thing that struck me is this isn't Democrats whining about not being in the White House. This isn't just, oh, sore losers of an election. This isn't partisanship. This is, by that article, the guy saying he likes some of the policies of the right wing or the conservatives or whatever. But he's saying one of Trump's own is saying this is out of control. That has real impact. So this is no longer a partisan political issue. And the hope is at least that was my first reaction to reading the article, maybe now there'll be enough Republicans that'll stand up and say, enough's enough, and grab a hold of this president and protect America from his instability. That kind of was a hope. And yet, to be honest, I have mixed emotions about that letter. Because on the one hand, yeah, I'm happy that allegedly there are people around him that are trying to protect the country from his instability. That's a little bit of a comfort. And yet, another part of me started to think, wait a second, that's not good either. I mean, the fact that we have a secret cable working in the White House, people we don't know, basically making the decisions to block an elected president and making decisions these are people that have no accountability to us. We're hoping that they make good decisions, but we don't know who these people are, and they haven't been elected to make these decisions for us. And so, you know, there are two sides to this. On the one hand, it's really good, but on the other hand, who are these? These people could be nuts too. We don't know who they are and why they decide to protect on one issue, but maybe not on another. This is not healthy for our democracy. The idea is that we elect a president and he has accountability to us. Not that there's some secret people there making all these decisions, an underground government. So I started to think about that, because that's not democracy. And then there was suddenly talk about invoking 
according to this article, that this secret group was actually talking among themselves about invoking the 25th Amendment. And let's be honest, for most people, we haven't heard someone mention the 25th Amendment, and if you went down the street and said, what's the 25th Amendment, until two weeks ago, or until this article came out, you know, what, 1% of America would be able to rattle it off what it is? Well, let's talk a bit about the 25th Amendment. How did it come to be? The 25th Amendment, look, we have had people that are unstable or um, incapacitated in the White House before. When Woodrow Wilson was president, he had a stroke in his final term, and for the last year or two, his wife was really making all the executive decisions. And back then, you didn't have social media, you didn't have the media that we have today, so that kind of stuff was kept quiet. But now anytime you read a history of Woodrow Wilson, you realize it was his wife making these decisions. When memos were sent to him, she read them and she made a decision. And he would sit there and have to sign something because he had a stroke, that's all he could do. So we had that situation. When Eisenhower was president, he had two heart attacks. Twice he was incapacitated and Richard Nixon was sitting in the cabinet meetings and kind of making those decisions. And to Nixon's credit, he was very careful not to use that opportunity to usurp the power of the presidency. He was very respectful of Eisenhower and really low-keyed it. That was one of the high points in, in, in his life in terms of career. And then, of course, we had the assassination of John Kennedy. And then suddenly it became clear that we have to do something about succession and also when a president's either no longer there or no longer mentally there or no longer emotionally there. And that is how the 25th Amendment came to be. Because when Kennedy was assassinated, Johnson became president, but there was then no vice president. And Johnson had already had a couple of heart attacks. So all of a sudden, they said, who would be next? And back then, in the mid-60s, it would go to the Speaker of the House and then the President Pro Tem, which is basically an honorary position. And these guys were in their 80s and 90s. So everyone said, whoa, what? what they, they can't really be president. What are we going to do? And this was in the middle of the Cold War and everything. So that's when the 25th Amendment came to be. The 25th Amendment has four articles. The first article, self-explanatory, it deals with succession. That if the president is gone, resigns, is killed, whatever, the vice president takes over. That's the easy part. The second article in the 25th Amendment deals with the vice presidency. What happens if the vice president leaves office for whatever reason? And you think, when is that going to happen? Well, amazingly, within a couple of years, it did happen. Because you're, you may remember Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's vice president, he had to resign because he was uh, indicted for criminal offenses. So he had to resign before Nixon did. So all of a sudden, Nixon was president under this investigation of Watergate, and there was no vice president. So the second part of the 25th Amendment came into effect. And this said that if there's no vice presidency because he either dies, resigns, indicted, whatever, 
that the president gets to nominate his vice president, and it has to be confirmed by a majority of both houses of Congress. And so Nixon picked Gerald Ford, and he was easily um, confirmed by the, how, the Congress and the Senate by a majority vote, almost a unanimous vote. So he became the vice president. Then, uh, uh, when Nixon had to resign, now Ford's president, and now there's no vice president. So Ford had to do it again, or, or the 25th Amendment had to be used again, and this time Ford picked Nelson Rockefeller, who filled out the, the rest of Ford's term. So you can see, since the 25th Amendment came into being, we've had a bunch of opportunities for it to be used. The third article of the uh, 25th Amendment has to do with a president temporarily passing power to the vice president for just a day or two or a week or so. And that's happened twice with George W. Bush when he went in for minor surgery. Cheney, I think Cheney became president for a day because he was, uh, you know, they, he was not conscious for a few hours. Well, maybe for the whole term. But uh, <laughs> no, 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 that's not fair. But anyway, so he passed it on to Cheney for a while and then Cheney gave it back. So that's Article 3. Now we come to Article 4. And this is what the people around Trump allegedly were talking about uh, when they got concerned about Trump. And Article 4 of the uh, 25th Amendment is when, an Amer is when a president is unable to, to fulfill his responsibilities. Now, the key there, in other, and when, when it appears that the president is unable to fulfill his uh, um, his constitutional responsibilities, that refers basically to either being mentally unstable or maybe getting dementia or whatever. And the way this comes into being is that the vice president, if the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, they write a letter to the Speaker of the House and say, the vice president is now taking over because the president is unable to fulfill his responsibilities. The president then, if he's able, has 48 hours to write a letter back to the Speaker of the House and say, no, I'm perfectly able, I'll, I'm taking the, the power back. And then it goes back to the president. And then if the vice president and the cabinet still believe that, then they submit it to the Senate, to the Congress for a vote. And then for the president to be removed, it has to be two-thirds of each house. Like the, the Congress and the Senate has to be two-thirds. You can see that's almost impossible unless he's really deranged. And we can all agree, or most of us can agree, that Trump is, not, is unfit to be president. But he's not unable to be president. He's not unable to, to do the job. He may be doing the job in a way that we hate, but he's certainly able to pass what I would consider bigoted legislation or legislation that hurts the poor, or legislation, you know, or, or get the Congress to try and uh, do something that aids wealthy people and not the rest. So he's unfit to be president, we will argue, but he's not unable. He's not he doesn't have dementia or 
you know, or, or insanity, let's say. Um, and it's impossible. You'll never get... The way to remove a president, if the president has committed a crime, the way is impeachment, not the 25th Amendment. Impeachment. If he's committed a crime, the way to go is impeachment. And by the way, impeachment's easier because impeachment, you just need a majority of Congress, two-thirds of the Senate, but only a majority of Congress. That gets rid of the president. So it's easier, and you don't have to go through the Senate, I mean the cabinet and the vice president, et cetera. Or if you don't like the policies of a president, then the way to remove him or her is the ballot box. And that's what we come down to again. It gets to be, we can't pass it on anymore. It is up to us, the voters. Don't be talking about a 25th Amendment. In fact, in most cases at this point, until we hear something else, it's not even realistic to talk about impeachment the way the Congress and the Senate is set up. We can't get away from our own responsibilities, and our own responsibilities as voters is to show up in November, and you know what? We get the government we deserve. We get the government we deserve. I'm going to ask Hickory Robot to come on back up. And uh, if you listen to last week's episode, Hickory Robot is an excellent group from the greater Cincinnati area. The groups that perform on the Jerry Springer podcast come from lots of places as far away as Oregon, like the Harm Brothers, uh, California bands, uh, bands from down in Austin, Texas. That's a hotbed of roots music. Asheville, North Carolina. We've had some from the New York City area. Hickory Robot is uh, from the Cincinnati area, which, by the way, has spawned lots of talent. Our proximity to the Appalachian Mountains uh, makes us kind of uh, heirs to the themes of Appalachian music. So we're very appreciative you guys came back uh, for another week. And uh, in Hickory Robot are Jim, Lauren, Scott, and Aaron. Do I have that right? Yep. And uh, first song is a song that uh, Scott wrote called John, correct? Correct. And on the other side, we'll talk about how people can hear more of your guys' music. So here we go. Song called John, Hickory Robot. Said I can't go round the mountain, gonna go right through it. So he picked up his hammer and he went to it. I'm tired of being told what can be done. I'm gonna keep swinging till I see the sun. Gonna let my hammer down and leave the mountain behind. Said it'd be a mistake for you to take the notion That you're ever gonna get in the way of a man in motion I'm tired of being told how fast to be I'll tear down anything you put in front of me I'm gonna lay my hammer down Leave the mountain behind Oh, 
trumpet sounding Louder than the ring of my hammers pounding I'm tired as good as his feet Let me rest on high, my spirit beat i let my hammer down Leave the mountain behind John Henry. That's right. I yeah. love that song. Yeah. You guys, you guys are a good band. Thank you. Really a cool band. Why are band. you with us? Yeah. <laughs> you asked. Hey, uh, by the way, you can hear more of Hickory Robot at hickoryrobot.com. They've got two albums out. They got one in production now. You can get them on Spotify, iTunes, Facebook, lots of places. Uh, Thank you very much for being with us. A couple weeks running. You guys are really good. So thank you. Take us out, please, on Down by the Riverside and let Jerry Springer destroy the second verse. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song and to you for listening. Check out our website, jerryspringer.com. <laughs>